What's up, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Rico's Watches podcast. I'm your host, Eric, and I am here joined today by Jose Perestroika of Periscope, here to chat with us about the good, the bad, and the ugly, and everything in between regarding Panerai. How's it going today, Jose? Hi, Eric. Thank you very much. Uh, it's going great. Uh, thanks for having me, and uh, good to be with you. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. I know you're sort of a subject matter uh, expert on this topic, and I'm very, very excited and enthused to be joined by you today. Before we kind of get into the nitty gritty, though, what do you have on the wrist? I have on my wrist an Eterna Super Contiki from 1965. This is from a special batch uh, made for the Italian Marina Militare, and it's one of uh, six watches that have surfaced so far. So it's a uh, Quite rare. That's a wonderful piece. Incredible uh, story there. I, I, on the wrist, also have uh, my Eterna Super Contiki. Mine is the 1973 reissue that was uh, a reissue of the one that was issued to the Israeli Defense Force. But uh, I would love to hear IDF, the... yeah. Yeah, I, I would, I, it's a really cool piece. I, I quite enjoy the proportions of it. But I would love to hear more about your watch and kind of where you came about such an interesting and limited piece. Yes, so uh, I found it per coincidence uh, on an Italian forum. Mm. Um, a guy who lives in La Spezia. La Spezia is uh, the naval, uh, the main naval base of the Italian uh, uh, of the Italian Navy. Mm. And um, so this guy is into watches, and he searches all the watchmakers around La Spezia to find like rare military pieces used by the Navy. And so. Uh, uh, he came uh, about this uh, uh, old watchmaker shop and uh, the watchmaker had just died and the family was like trying to sell all that was inside the atelier and uh, inside the atelier they found um, six of these watches I'll show it to you mm -hmm. and uh, so they found six watches and uh, all of them uh, have serial number within seven numbers so this makes clear that uh, they belong to, to a special batch made, um, made probably for the Navy. And um, it has also like a three-digit matriculation number on the, on the case back. Okay. And um, what is special about this watch is that it has a, a special uh, uh, dual-scale uh, bezel insert. Uh, it has uh, a no-deco, uh, the no-deco version Plus, it has the, the regular uh, elapsed time um, uh, markings. And uh, this is the, so far the only, the only model of, of the Super Contiki that was found to have this type of bezel. And this is 1965. So this is like two years before DOXA uh, patented this, the very same idea. Mm -hmm. So it will be interesting to research this further to understand who came up with, uh, with these ideas as, as, as first. Are there any other vari variations of that watch that weren't issued to the military where it still has that no deco bezel with a timing bezel on it as well too? Or is that pretty much like an Italian exclusive right there? This is an Italian exclusive, that's right. And um, the reason why we know that actually the Marina Militare had these watches is because the guy who, who found them, he went to the Consubine base in uh, Barignano, which is near La Spezia. Mm -hmm. That's where the, where the frogmen are trained. And um, he dug into the archives there, uh, the photo archives, and he found several pictures of uh, uh, frogmen, Italian frogmen actually wearing these pieces. So this is basically a confirmed case 
So far, only six watches have surfaced. It will be interesting to see whether more watches surface over time. But so far, it's a, it's a pretty rare watch, and uh, it's something something special, out of the ordinary, not the usual submariner that you always have. But it's uh, yeah, something something interesting. Well, and it's so interesting. I think Eterna is one of those brands that is so underappreciated, both for their history and even what they offer now in timepieces. You know, you absolutely. Hear, you hear so much about absolutely. mil subs and mil omegas, but you know, uh, Eterna really had its own corner of the market uh, during that era as well, too, where they're making some really cool that's high right. performing watches and i think that uh yeah. something that's really overlooked you know you see some pieces starting to go for quite a bit of money that are have military ties to them but generally speaking there's still uh so much to learn about them out there absolutely and i think the, uh, one of the reasons why uh several uh military forces around the globe used them is because probably they had a very interesting price comp compared to for instance like omega or or a, a Rolex, um, and you know, with with uh, military watches is uh, is always a little bit a, a price question. So mm -hmm. if you if you look at the at the uh, at the forces today, most of them use Casio G-Shock watches mm -hmm. because they are cheap, they are replaceable. You know, if, if something breaks, it's easy to replace. And I think this was the case with these watches as well. The the Navy wanted the watch that is not uh, very costly and if something happened to it it could easily be replaced hmm. yeah definitely and, and an incredibly cool piece to uh definitely have in one's collection and uh curious to see if there's more of them out there anywhere as well too and i'm, I'm sure over years yeah. over the years and with people like yourself doing the research that you do uh we'll definitely see more turn up and we'll start to kind of unfold more of the story as uh, things progress for sure but yes, yes. talking this more... is a little bit of a Sorry, this is a little bit of a, a, a story that is not so well known so far, mm -hmm. uh, but I'm planning to uh, to write an article about it uh, as soon as I can collect more uh, more information on mm -hmm. it. So, can you kind of tell, I guess, the audience a little bit about yourself? Uh, you know, how you came into the watch collecting world, and also how you came to have your own platform that you write articles on and provide information and do your investigative pieces on. Sure. Uh, as a as a kid, um, you know, growing up in Switzerland, I lived in Switzerland until 2014. Mm -hmm. I was born in Switzerland. I lived my entire life in Switzerland. So uh, watches in Switzerland is something natural to have. It's not something you you really talk about. You know, everybody has a has one at least. And uh, as a kid growing up, I uh, you know I had these uh, quartz watches. Then I had like some Casio um, uh, calculator watches that were very trendy at the time. Then came the, the swatch craze with all the limited editions and, uh, and so, so forth. And uh, I remember as a kid sneaking into my, uh, my parents' uh, uh, bedroom and I would go and get my father's watches out and play with them, you know, like wind them, listen to them. So that's, that's one of my first uh, um, memories I have uh, about watches. Okay, and so how did that progress into, I guess, modern collecting, and then also into you writing about watches? Yeah, so in um, around 1999, I bought my first expensive watch, and that was a Breitling Navitimer. Um, and, and this is in 1999, but in 1998, this is a story that is important to understand where I'm coming from. So in, in late 1998, I had my coworker who came to, to my workstation um, uh, 
uh, at the time I was an art director in in advertising mm -hmm. and uh, this co-worker comes to my workstation and says Jose I need to show you something I just found something extremely uh, uh, awesome so he types in a URL in my browser and up pops up like uh, like this watch and it was a, a Panerai Luminor mm -hmm. and uh, I've never seen anything similar so it, it had this cushion case it had had this weird dial with with you know with with this loops the six and the nine and it had this this uh, crown guard on the side so it's it was something like out of out, completely out of this world i've never seen anything similar mm -hmm. so he explained to me his watches were used by italian frogmen in the second world war and uh, that the original watches back then had uh, rolex movements and when when he mentioned the italian frogmen i had this flashback from my from my childhood and uh, uh, at, when, when I was a kid, my mother used to work part time and I spent half days with an Italian family. And that's how I learned to, to speak Italian, basically. So I remember they lived in this old uh, textile factory near a river. And um, it was like a loft with very uh, high ceilings. And it had these thick outer walls mm -hmm. and um, it had this massive window seal there and on the window seal they had uh, piles of Italian comics, so-called fumettis. Um, and most of them were Western, some were even sex comics. You imagine as a four year old like browsing through <laughs> sex comics. But some of them were also about Italian frogmen. And I remember as a kid, those were like really exceptional. I to totally loved them. And when I heard from this guy, uh, telling me about the Italian frogman and this watch was used by them. I had this flashback and all of a sudden I had this this immediate connection to uh, to Panerai, which is, you know, and that has remained with me until today. Okay. And then so I guess how did that, uh, like, what did you do with this newfound knowledge of Panerai? I guess, how did you ended up purchasing one or collecting a few? How did you yeah. end up writing about Panerai? Yeah, so as, as mentioned, uh, my first uh, watch, expensive watch, was a Breitling Navitimer, just because I always had this, this, uh, this, uh, you know, this dream of of owning one. For me, a uh, Breitling Navitimer was always like a very complete watch. Mm -hmm. It's a chronograph. It's it's just very elegant. I mean, it's it's sporty and elegant at the same time. You can mm -hmm. wear it with, you know, with a, with a, uh, you know, with normal clothes, but you can also wear it with a suit. Um, and and it has this this uh, you know this uh, rotating um, um, it's, it's basically like like a uh, how do you call it in English? Um, it's, yeah. it's like a a slide rule. Yeah, it's like a, exactly it's like a ruler. It's mm. like the, the rulers that the engineers used to use in the old days, you know, to make calculations. Mm -hmm. So the Navi timer has the same system. So for pilots to calculate, like you know, like all kinds of uh, uh, things they need during the flight, which is very interesting. So for me, the, the Navi timer was, was very, a very complete watch. And um, my, uh, Panerai became only my third watch after a Rolex Submariner. Mm. I think it was around 2006. I bought my first uh, Panerai 111. Mm. It was uh, the version, the version with the sausage dial. And then I remember short after they came out with the, with the sandwich dial for the same model. And uh, at some point, I bought, I, you know, I, I, I flipped the, the old one and I, I bought uh, one with the sandwich dial. 
And um, in 2012, I bought the 372. Uh, do you know the 372? Yeah, the 47 millimeter plexi crystal, uh, no seconds, kind of like the typical, like the closest thing to a vintage Panerai you can get in the current collection. Exactly, exactly. It is said that it is the it was it was said at the time that it is the closest you can get to a Rolex made 6152 uh, one uh, with luminor dial and with the with the crown guard. Mm -hmm. So, and that watch is absolutely stunning. Uh -huh. I mean, even today, even if I'm not like the biggest fan of modern Panerai, but the 372 is like really a very elegant watch. It's mm -hmm. it's truly amazing. Also with the plexi crystal. The, the new models had, uh, I think, a sapphire crystal. Okay. I had the one with the, with the Plexi. So that much really uh, sparked my interest for, for vintage Panerai. Mm. Uh, until that moment, I, I didn't know much about, about the history of Panerai. I knew what I had read in marketing, you know, pamphlets from, from Panerai or in uh, Pan, um, Panerai catalogs. And... Um, so I started researching online and uh, very quickly I came, uh, uh, I stumbled upon the Omash Forum. Do you know the Omash Forum? I've heard of them. Yeah, I'm not, uh, I'm not a member of them, but I know of their existence. Why don't you tell me a little bit about them? So the Omash Forum is a place where, um, where people share their knowledge and experiences with uh, building replicas of vintage watches. Mm -hmm. And uh, mostly it's, it's vintage Panerai watches. And uh, those are just, you know, guys who, who build the watches for themselves. It's not, it's not basically something, you know, like a, like a, uh, I don't know, like some, something that, you know, it's, they, they make watches to sell and, you know, rip off people or whatever. It's, it's really enthusiasts who love vintage Panerai. They no, don't necessarily have the funds to, to uh, buy a, a, a very expensive vintage watch. I remember at the time, 2013, um, there was one sixty-one fifty-two one that sold at Christie's like for two hundred fifty thousand Swiss francs. It was it was the model without the the Panerai crown guard, so it had still the the Rolex uh, screw down crown. Okay. And I mean prices at the time were at the top, right? All these watches were extremely expensive. So it was it was uh, you know finding the the Omash forum was a was a very fascinating thing for me because I've never seen. Uh, people basically replicating uh, old watches. Mm. I knew about the, you know, the, the regular replicas you can buy for, you know, of of, of uh, modern watches, but I didn't know that people would replicate old watches. So it was it was really fascinating for me, and uh, inspired by the dynamics of the forum. Of course, I I built a number of watches myself, three in total. Mm -hmm. So I bought parts from from the from the parts uh, um, suppliers. Uh, I bought dials from the dial suppliers, and then I assembled the watches myself. And a big part of the of the homage uh, game is is the movement. Mm -hmm. So basically, um, the original Rolex Panerai watches had Rolex 618 movements, which were made by Cortbear. And Cortbear uh, was at the time uh, was something like a ETA. Uh, they would produce uh, movements for for a variety of, of watch brands, and the interesting thing about about court pair movements is that they basically um, the concept of the movement was to have one base movement, and then have like up to four different bridge designs. 
So basically you could have, it's the same movement, but with a br different bridge design, you can make it look completely different. So basically each brand would be uh, able to have their own version. I think that was the thinking uh, uh, of, of Cordpair at the time. So basically the Rolex 618 is basically the same movement as the Cordpair, Cordpair 616. Mm -hmm. The Cordpair 616 is a movement that was used by Cordpair in thousands and thousands of railway pocket watches they made for, for Portugal, they made for Turkey, they made for, for many other countries. And those pocket watch, uh, watches you can buy on eBay for like around $300. Uh. So basically you get the same movement that is installed in a Rolex Panerai watch for $300. But it is not exactly the same because the bridges look different. So at the time, there was, there was a, mo a movement that was considered to be a, a real Rolex 618 that was found in uh, Rolex pocket watches from the 1930s and 1940s. Um, and those were extremely, you know, extremely valuable. The prices were around 10,000 US dollars for, for one of those, depending on the condition. Um, and I remember people were just crazy, you know, like claiming they are, they are the, the, the same movement as the ones that were used in Rolex Panerai, although the finish was different, they were more refined, uh, the, the engravings on the bridges were different, it, you know, it had more text on it. But basically those movements were like a very elegant version uh, and they could be found in Rolex pocket watches that were basically like dress pocket watches mm -hmm. that you would wear you know, with a nice dress. And... Um, and, the, uh, you know, uh, on the other hand, the Rolex Panerai movements are very utilitarian. They have like a minimal, a minimal uh, finish on it. They are very actually quite raw. I mean, they, they are pocket watch movements, but they are quite raw. Mm -hmm. And it is coming back to, the, to what we discussed earlier. Uh, military watches are not supposed to be expensive. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, they, they are supposed to work as a tool watch to work well. But the, the finish, the looks uh, are not that important. So for, for Rolex Panerai watches, those Rolex 618 movements were not that beautiful. Um, so basically, I, I had heard that those uh, Rolex 618 pocket watch movements um, were thinner than, uh, than the 616 and the 618. So, of course, a thinner movement means it is, it is a different caliber. Mm -hmm. And I knew that Cortebert had also made a caliber 620, which was basically the same as the, as the caliber 616, but it was thinner. So I suspected that it was basically the same as with the 616, 618, that it was basically a 620, but with different bridges. So I started researching, I started writing down all the all the movement serial numbers of the known uh, movements. Um, I started documenting in a database all the pocket watches from Rolex, from uh, Cordpair, Telos, and uh, Jupiter, and mm -hmm. Nomolas, and other brands that all use the very same movements. And so, uh, you know, information about hundreds of, of pocket watches and movements came together. And um, so slowly, uh, I started to understand that it was really based on the on the 620. And then I found on eBay naked plates of, of the Rolex, of, the, of that Rolex pocket watch movement. I bought them and I had them sent to my watchmaker in, uh, in uh, Switzerland. 
And then I also bought a 616 and I also bought a 620 and sent both pocket watches to the Swiss watchmaker. And then he tried to complete, I mean, we are talking really about just, just the, the main plate and the bridges. There was no components, no, there were no rubies, nothing. It was just the naked plates. And uh, so my watchmaker tried to assemble it. And then he tried with the 616 uh, components and they wouldn't work. He mm. tried with the 620 components and they were exactly the same, the same height, everything worked. So he assembled the, uh, the, the movement with those 620 components. And then the case was clear, right? So a little bit later, I came across the very same movement, uh, this, this Rolex pocket watch movement based on the 620, but from a different brand. And it had the caliber number on it. So the caliber number, the original caliber number for that movement was 622. So I, I wrote an article. I wrote an article about it, and this was my, my first major research project. Mm -hmm. I wrote an article about it, and I published it on the on the Omash forum. And of course, many people were not happy about this new, newly revealed information because they had paid, you know, tons of uh, of money for their for their movements, and all of a sudden it came out that it wasn't a, a real Rolex 618. And of course, uh, prices started to collapse. I think at the end they were like around. 1,500 US dollars or something, mm. so you could get them quite cheap. Um, yeah, so this is this is how I learned about these movements. Uh, you know, really studying the serial numbers, uh, digging into you know, documenting all the all the pocket watch movements and stuff. So I had this huge database all of a sudden, and then it started to dawn on me that um, that some watches that were considered original had similar movements. So there was one watch that was considered a holy grail among mm. collectors and, and the Panaristi. And uh, that watch had exactly one of those Rolex 622 pocket watch movements. And of course, those movements are from a different time period. They are mm. from, from the 1930s. And this watch was from the 1950s. So something didn't add up there. So I started researching that watch. I found uh, an auction from 1999, I think, where the same watch with the same case number had been auctioned. And that watch had a different dial and different hands. Oh. So all of a sudden it became clear that um, the holy grail that was like, you know, uh, appreciated so much by all these uh, uh, enthusiasts turned out to be a Franken watch. So, you know, what to do with this information, right? I thought, you know, you know, probably the, the owner wouldn't be happy to know about it. But if the watch w was ever to be sold, the new, uh, you know, the, a prospective buyer would want to know that this watch was not original, born like this. Because, you know, or when, when it comes to vintage Rolex Panerai, I think the, the important thing here is that they are historical pieces, right? Mm -hmm. That they were witness to historical events. Mm -hmm. And if a watch is like, you know, it's 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 uh, basically made up from 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 loose parts. Uh, it hasn't a history. It's basically like a homage watch. Of course, it's made from original parts, but it's it's a watch that doesn't really have a, a real history, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of that provenance gets so what, lost, right? A lot of that provenance is lost if it's just an assembly of random, yes, exactly. random parts, right? I mean, some some of some of the parts might be. Uh, you know, might have taken part in some in some uh, events, but which which you don't know. So basically, the whole 
you know the whole the whole um, soul of the of the watch is gone mm-hmm. when you when you have such a piece, right? So what to do with this information? Um, I thought, you know, I I did what I thought was right. Uh, I uh, wrote an article about it and published it on panoristi.com, mm. and um, you know because I thought people would be interested in in learning this and would be you know would be uh, uh, yeah I mean would be would appreciate this information right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was completely wrong. So I published this article, and short after. Uh, uh, a lynch mob was assembled, and they came after me with all sorts of political, uh, uh, political, with all sorts of uh, personal attacks. Nothing on the on the topic. Nobody nobody discussed the topic because I had made such a compelling case. Everything was so, you know, like so clear. And also, were at at the end, I also found basically the dial from 1999. I found. Found it in the display of of a, of a famous vintage watch dealer from Italy. <laughs> so uh, this is the guy who actually made up the whole watch and had auctioned it off in uh, 1999. So basically, um, yeah. So these guys in the Panaristi forum they found out that I was that I was in the in the Omash forum. They, they used that against me, like saying, you know, you you are a faker. You know, you are a replica guy, and. Uh, but as said, nobody ever talked about the substance itself, about the watch, and whether whether what I had uh, written was 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 true or not. It was all about personal stuff. So they also came up with this. This was quite funny. They came up with this uh, with this theory that that was uh, a remote control hitman uh, sent by a by a mysterious puppet master whose uh, sole purpose was to ridicule the senior members <laughs> of the forum. So it, it, it took quite a clownish, uh, you know, like, uh, um, yeah, it was, it was hilarious. So anyway, so short after, I was banned from the forum mm-hmm. and I have been banned ever since for a lifetime. So the Panaristi and I are not, uh, you know, on the... On great terms together, uh, yeah. So basically, that's how I how I uh, started started uh, Periscope because, uh, of course, I mean, this was clearly an an attempt to shut me down. Mm-hmm. But ironically, their attempt to shut me down led to the idea for Periscope. Mm-hmm. And uh, it is interesting that when this happened, there was a very silent reader uh, on Panaristi.com. And that silent reader was Jake Ehrlich from Rolex magazine, mm-hmm. and um, you know him. I know of him. I don't. I haven't spoken to him on the show or anything like that. Okay. So uh, he has been publishing uh, articles about Rolex and also about Panerai, Patek, Philippe, and, and other stuff for for several years. I think he started like in 2011 or 2012. Uh, so always, you know, each time you you Google you Googled like vintage Panerai or vintage Rolex, you would you would come across his uh, his articles. Mm-hmm. So he was a silent reader there, and he just couldn't understand why the Panaristi uh, wouldn't embrace the information that I you know, came uh, came across. Right. So um, you know, because the the case I had made was extremely compelling. I mean, everything was was clearly on the table for everybody to see, 
And so he reached out to me and we talked for hours. We have been friends ever since. And uh, somehow in, you know, in conversation with him, uh, I developed the idea for, for, for Periscope, you know, just to publish my articles on my own website so that nobody could ban me, nobody could shut me down. And I could just, you know, uh, publish, publish the results of my, uh, of my research. And the, the watch that I had talked about on Panaristi was only one of many other watches that were completely made up. Well, yeah, and, and now Periscope has really taken on a body of itself, right? I mean, it has its own uh, loyal list of readers that you know are hanging on every word of every article that you write. I know I've enjoyed many of the historical articles that you've written on there as well, too, as well as I find the replica... Um, the replica and Franken uh, watch articles quite interesting too, as you kind of pick apart all these things that help you find out whether or not these, whether or not these watches are fake, what sort of uh, movements are used in them, the compilation of parts that are being used in them. It's it's very it's a very good resource to have, and and you're right. You bring up the point of you know well, people who are enthusiasts for these watches. Why wouldn't they want to simply have more information or more accurate information to then improve the community and to make it a better, safer place for everyone as well too? Because people are spending a lot of money on these historical pieces, exactly. and a lot of them are yes. getting scammed, right? Yes. Uh, my my impression, and I don't know if I'm if I'm right or wrong, but my impression is that that uh, some of the some of the senior guys on the Panaristi forum knew about what was going on mm. with with all of the Frankenstein watches and uh, they just wanted to keep it under the rug and uh, when I started publishing this stuff of course uh, they, they were scared that all of this information would come out and that uh, of course all of their vintage watches would, would uh, you know lose lose value which mm. eventually happened because the prices prices came down the more articles I wrote about it the more the the prices for um, vintage Rolex Panerai came down. Mm -hmm. And you've sort of alluded to it in other articles that there are certain individuals in that community that were able to get their hands on a large cache of uh, leftover parts essentially from the old Panerai factory. And that's sort of where a lot of these replicas that have been showing up on the market or these Franken watches have been showing up on the market from. That's right, that's right. Uh, so the, the story there is that in, uh, in the early 1990s, uh, uh, Panerai. This is this was before they made the re-edition of, of of the so-called you know the pre-Vendom watches. Mm -hmm. so this was probably around 1991, 1992. So they um, they had acquired um, smaller companies and they were like located in the center of, of Florence, but in different buildings. And in order to to bring all the all the employees under one roof and be more efficient in their work. So they uh, they rented uh, uh, an industrial building uh, on the outskirts of Florence, and they moved there. And um, so in the moving moving process, they had to you know get rid of all sorts of uh, stuff. So in in, the, in uh, this is this is quite funny because so Panerai claims that um, the modern Panerai claims that there's not much information about about you know what happened in the past because all the documents were lost in the flood from 1966. There was a, a huge flood in, uh, in, uh, in Florence after it rained for, for several days. The Arno River, you know, just uh, inundated the whole city. And mm. so they, their official story is that all these documents went lost because of the flood. Mm. But the, true is, the truth is that when they moved to the outskirts of Florence, they had all this 
stuff, all these old documents, like secret documents, you know, like um, all in the warehouse, they had all these parts, machines from the old days. And um, so they burned, I know for a fact from, from uh, former uh, Panera em employees, I know for a fact that they basically burned all the documents. Uh, so that's how they got destroyed, not oh, by man. the flood. And, uh, and so they called two vintage watch dealers from, from, from the you know, surroundings of, of Florence that they knew that they were interested in all this old Panerai stuff. Uh, they basically called them up. They told them, look, we are moving. Uh, you can come to our warehouse and you can just take whatever you need. Uh, and, and, you know, it's for free. Just take it with you. And it was it was just you know to make the moving process uh, simpler. They just didn't want to move all this stuff, all this old stuff that was in their eyes was worthless. So these two vintage watch dealers got there and they found cases, they found movements, they found dials, um, they found machines, they found the pantograph machines, which which the old Panerai company would engrave the dials and and other stuff. So they found everything there and they got everything for free they took everything to them and uh, basically there's a lot of frankenstein vintage rolex panerai watches and uh, all of all of those frankenstein watches they basically originate either from this guy or from this other guy because they had like an endless amount of, of uh, parts and uh, they assembled watches as they needed them to you know for to sell so that's how how all these uh, Frankenstein watches uh, were created. Well, and it's just one of those things that you know. It's, I mean, Rolex obviously has a lot of its modern imitations, replicas, and fakes. But I'd say uh, Panerai is the one that comes up in the close second for one of the most uh, commonly faked watches, and and has such a um, a full community around just like the replication homage pieces. Um, obviously the Franken watches and things like that too. Like there's so, it's such a unique community that surrounds the brand uh, pertaining to not even the authentic original watches. It, and, and so much money tied up in the replicas and the homages that end up getting out there as well too, are the, uh, yeah. I, I keep misusing yeah. the wrong term, the, uh, the Franken watches that get out there. So it's uh, definitely uh, it's definitely something unique about the brand too, and there's so much history and, and interesting stories behind that. Can you share a little bit, I suppose, of uh, a timeline or a history about the origins of the Panerai brand, uh, some of the significance that it developed as a brand throughout World War II, and then sort of leaving us up until uh, the 1990s when we sort of saw this rebirth of the brand? Sure, I think it is uh, it is very important to understand. How uh, you know how how uh, you know Panerai operated back in the days to understand uh, where they are now. Mm -hmm. um, so I think I think the whole the whole Panerai um, story starts actually with with um, you know with with uh, what was his name Giovanni I think it was Giovanni so the, the first one was Giovanni Giovanni Panerai he. Uh, um, he set up a shop in Florence uh, to sell pocket watches and, and other like clocks and whatever. Um, and so, so it was basically born as a, as a watch shop. And um, so in 1913, I think this was um, 
so you had you had Giuse Giovanni Panarai, then you had another Panarai, and then you have Guido Panarai, mm -hmm. and Guido Panarai in uh, 1913, 1914, 1915. So he developed he developed these um, uh, sites for guns uh, that were that were illuminated by uh, by a radium substance around it. And so the goal was to be able to aim at your targets at night. Mm -hmm. So um, the name Radiomir is actually consists of two Italian words, radio and mire. So mm -hmm. radio is obviously radium and mire means sights. Mm -hmm. So it's basically these radium sights. And that's actually what he patented in, uh, in 1913. Um, for a long time, it was claimed by the by the modern Panerai company that he that he had created this radium, uh, you know, luminous uh, substance. Mm -hmm. But um, that one was actually patented in 1905 by by an American guy named Kunz, I think. Okay. Uh, so 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 basically, uh, Guido Panerai didn't invent the luminous substance. The luminous sub substance was already there, invented for several years already. But what he did is he applied the, the luminous substance to these uh, sites so that the, the military could aim at targets at night. Mm -hmm. So that's how, how this came about. And the name uh, uh, Radio Mire was, was so popular among the, the Navy, I think, that it became synonymous for all this uh, radium illuminated uh, stuff that uh, Panerai used to make at the time. And we are talking about sites we are talking about uh, like uh, torpedo torpedo angle ca calculators they had on ships they they made um, they made gorges for 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 ships and for submarines that were illuminated with with this radium uh, substance and all sorts of uh, other other instruments so at the time um, panerai was was set up like this so they had this uh, precision workshop Mm -hmm. where they created all these calculators and gorges and stuff like that and instruments. And then on the other side, they had uh, the Orologeria Switzera, which was the watch shop. And the watch shop used to supply the, the Italian Navy with the marine chronometers and pocket watches and all sorts of clocks that they needed. So in 1935, um, there, was, there was like this... Uh, this conflict uh, that started to uh, to develop in Ethiopia because um, basically Italy, fascist in Italy under Mussolini, uh, he wanted to take over uh, to colonialize Ethiopia, which was the the only independent state on the African continent at the time. Mm -hmm. So of course, all the other nations like uh, the, the the Brits, the the France, uh, Germany. Uh, they were all against against uh, this this uh, war that was on the horizon, and so um, in September 1935, the the British sent their home fleet, that was basically uh, the fleet that they had to protect their own waters around Great Britain, mm -hmm. uh, which consisted of several battleships, um, uh, battle carrier uh, uh, aircraft carriers. Um, battle cruisers. It was a whole armada of of ships, as the name already says, home mm -hmm. fleet. 
But they sent the home fleet into the Mediterranean to intimidate Mussolini, mm-hmm. you know, to tell him, no, don't, don't go and uh, make war against the Ethiopians. Mm-hmm. And uh, this was the moment when uh, the Italian realized that if there was a war against Great Britain, that the Italian Navy couldn't stand a chance against uh, the, the British Navy mm-hmm. because they were like, they were like the, you know, like the the uh, top top of the top navies on, uh, on the planet at the mm-hmm. time. So they understood that if they wanted to inflict damage to the to the British Navy, they had to come up with with new ideas. So they developed this asymmetrical um, concept, uh, warfare concept, where they basically one of the ideas was the explosive boats. Mm-hmm. Were um, they were like uh, small, very fast boats. Uh, they were powered by Alfa Romeo engines. Mm-hmm. Had something around like seventy-five horsepower or something, mm-hmm. and they had like a three hundred and fifty kg uh, explosive charge uh, in the front. And so the the pilot would steer the the ship towards an enemy target, and then like fifty meters before the before the target, he would eject. It had the, the backrest of the of the boat was at the same time a, a, a safe, um, like a flotation a device. Okay. Yeah, yeah, flotation. They're like a like a life 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 raft. So it was like folded, and then they would unfold it, and they could swim to the shore. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the the basically the boat would hit the target, and then the explosion would not yet take place. Um, then basically it would break apart the boat, and the front of the boat would sink. And then like two meters underneath the surface, it would explode to cause maximum damage to the to the ship hull. So this was one idea. The second idea was the man torpedoes. We all know of, of course. Mm-hmm. The Miale. The Miale, exactly. Miale mm-hmm. uh, named so because they were like so difficult to steer that they, uh, one of the guys said, it's like, uh, you know, like trying to uh, ride a, a, a mule. Pick. Oh, a pig, a pig. Yeah, sorry, a pig. Yes, a pig. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yes. So basically, the idea for the for the man torpedo was not new because they had already the Italians had already used something like a man torpedo in uh, in 1918, but uh, at the time it was just a you know like a long like like a like a modified torpedo with with some explosive charges in the front that could be uh, um, you know removed to be placed underneath uh, next to a ship. And uh, so this torpedo would be uh, steered by two swimmers. Mm -hmm. They didn't have yet uh, a breathing device. So they were just swimming next to the torpedo on the surface and they would steer the torpedo basically. And um, so when they arrived at at their target, they would remove the the warheads and place it next to the hull to to blow up the ship. so the man torpedo from 1935, the concept was a different one. They wanted to basically sneak mm-hmm. into enemy harbors uh, and so underneath the water so that they couldn't uh, be detected from the surface. So they had a breathing device, an oxygen breathing device, uh, a, re- a rebreather. So basically a closed circuit um, uh, thing where they, the exhaled air would be recycled, uh, recycled through a soda lime scrubber. So basically, they would breathe out, it would go through the soda lime uh, um, scrubber, would be cleaned of CO2, and it could be uh, used again, the same air. Mm. So the, the, 
the advantage the advantage of this system is that it doesn't create bubbles underneath the water so this helps the cause to sneak into enemy uh, harbors without being detected but the thing with uh, with uh, oxygen rebreather is that the maximum depth of where you can go is is like 10 to 12 meters because un uh, below that depth under pressure oxygen becomes toxic to the to the body mm -hmm. so it can be very dangerous and i think many uh, many of the um, of the divers actually you know uh, suffered uh, damage to their lungs when they dove deeper so mm -hmm. anyway so there you see what the range was it was like between you know they, they were they were basically operating between five and, and ten meters in that range and so this was the second the second um, idea and the third idea was created by Angelo Belloni who was a, a, a submarine commander in World War One and he was uh, conducting all types of experiments with rebreathers so the Italian mm -hmm. rebreather that I just talked about was basically was basically a modified version of the British Davis rebreather that was developed to uh, escape sunken uh, submarines in shallow water mm -hmm. um, but Belloni further developed uh, the Davies uh, rebreather so that the um, the operating range was up to five hours for the so the divers could be underneath the water for like up to five uh, hours which is quite long with this you know recycle recycled mm -hmm. air device um, so his idea Angelo Belloni's idea was to create this um, uh, underwater infantry where divers um, equipped with the rebreather uh, with a 50 kilogram uh, explosive charge on their back and lead shoes would basically uh, um, be transported by a submarine near an enemy harbor. They would get out of the submarine and then walk on the seafloor towards their targets and attach the explosive charge the hull mm -hmm. and this was like a great idea in theory but once they really tried to do that uh, they realized that you know after after basically 20 minutes the divers had to surface because it was just too you know too exhausting to walk on muddy sea floors rocky sea floors mm -hmm. you never know what kind of sea floor you will expect so it was impossible to to realize and then there was this other guy uh, his name is uh, Eugenio Volk he was uh, with with Ukraine, Ukrainian um, origins, and he basically took uh, Belloni's idea and uh, and basically made made it workable. What it did is he gave the divers the full advantage of the water mm -hmm. by you know by using swim fins. At the time, the swim fins were not yet very popular. They had already been invented, I think, by a by a French guy mm -hmm. a few year, years earlier, but you know, like diving or swimming uh, underneath the water was not yet uh, a public, you know, recreational uh, thing yet. Um, so he equipped the divers with uh, swim fins so that they could uh, easily uh, swim, uh, swim with more ease in the water. And then he uh, developed a, a very small rebreather. So basically, the swimmers would swim on the surface and then only dive shortly before they basically went underneath the ship hull to attach up to three very small uh, explosive charges that they were carrying with them. You know, they were like carrying, they, they had like some um, um, 
the, 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 the explosive charges had uh, something around them that made them like float, okay. had, like some floats around, so they it wouldn't be heavy mm -hmm. for for the for the divers. So this was was basically the third idea that was created. So they had they had the explosive boats, they had the manned torpedoes, and then they had the, the frogmen, which was the gamma unit. Mm -hmm. And gamma is uh, is the Greek letter for G, and uh, it, it referred to guastatore in Italian. Guastatore means demolisher. Okay, so they're like the Italian UDT divers, like the similar to like the uh, Navy SEALs, the underwater demolition exactly. teams. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So basically, basically the Italian created were the pioneers for all this underwater warfare mm -hmm. that uh, you know that came after World War Two with the underwater demolition teams in uh, in the US the French started to have their own units the British uh, so they basically all learned from uh, from the Italian mm -hmm. okay and so how did this and so this was that uh, decima flotilla mass then was this group of gamma that exactly, was part exactly. of that and that was kind of split up exactly. into multiple different parts within one unit there was like the boating yes. people there yes. was the underwater demolition people and there was like an infantry uh, aspect of them as well too well, infantry was the earliest idea, but then they became the frogmen. Basically, uh, I think the name the name frogmen was actually coined at the time mm. because of because of the gamma guys who you know with the swim fins they would look like Womo Womini Rana, which means frogmen. Uh, I think the, the the name actually originates from from the Italian, but I could be wrong. Okay. So anyway, coming coming back to uh, why how Panerai uh, started to to supply watches to to these units. So basically, when they when they developed this uh, the manned torpedoes and, and the the you know the, the underwater infantry, uh, they realized that they needed uh, you know they needed a timing device for the divers mm -hmm. uh, to to you know not 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 to synchronize their attacks necessarily because you know they have if you look at the watches they have like five minutes interval so it's not a very precise mm. uh, measure measuring of time but um, more the idea was more you know as a, as an orientation you know what what time it is and when the explosive charges will will blow up uh, you need to keep in mind that at the time they had like a timing devices for the explosive charges that would, you know, explode like maybe four to six hours later, um, depending on how they were set up. Mm -hmm. um, and, and for instance, something interesting about the Frogman, so they had these small uh, explosive charges and later versions of these explosive charges, they had like a small propeller. Mm -hmm. And so when, when they attached the explosive charges to, to the ship uh, bilge, which is like a, a thing that goes around the hull underneath the, 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 the surface to keep the, the ship steady. So they would, they would basically attach those explosive charges with two clamps. And uh, so it had this small uh, propeller on it so that basically the explosive charge would only be activated after the ship would leave the harbor and would uh, you know after a number of revolutions of this uh, propeller it would activate the timing device mm -hmm. and then the ship would basically explode out in the sea and mm -hmm. nobody would know that it was actually uh, had been uh, uh, um, how to say uh, had been sabotaged by by uh, by divers in the harbor 
but they probably thought it was it had been torpedoed by a submarine or something. So it okay. was basically to conceal to conceal the type of attack. So anyway, so um, naturally uh, the Navy because they always uh, got their timing devices, whether it's a marine chronometer, uh, pocket watches, all sorts of clocks. They always bought this stuff from from the Orologeria Svizzera, which was Panorai's uh, watch shop. So it was a natural thing to approach Panerai and ask whether they had something, you know, something fitting for the for the divers, mm -hmm. right? Um, so this this is in we are talking about around October 1935. This is when the first manned torpedo prototype was developed and they started to test it. And um, so so we ha we found at the original Panerai site in the documents of Giuseppe Panerai, we found this invoice from, um, which is it's actually a delivery note, not an invoice. It's a delivery note from October 24, 1935. And it's about, um, they basically, on that date, they sent Rolex Geneva sent, um, a Rolex reference 2533 mm. um, uh, in 9-carat gold with a 16-3-quarter linear movement to Panerai in Florence. And uh, so there's, 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 this is the interesting part. There's a, a Rolex catalog that was once published in a, in, a, in a book about Rolex, I think in the 1980s by a British author and in that Rolex catalog from 1935 there is a reference 35 uh, 2533 and it's basically a cushion case watch with wire lugs it has it has a, a, a big crown on the right side and it has a small seconds of nine and uh, it has it has like skeletonized hands mm -hmm. obviously with luminous with luminous uh, um, paste on it, and so this this shows you that you know we have this invoice from 1935 where this watch was sent uh, to Panerai. We know how the watch looked like, and it looks exactly like like what you would expect from uh, from a Panerai. It has the cushion case, mm -hmm. the wire lugs, the big crown on the right side. So basically, that's the origins of um, of what we call today a Panerai watch. Okay, and so very much at the time then, Panerai wasn't necessarily acting so much as a watchmaker, but more of a dial maker. They had their own proprietary dials that they were then putting inside of these essentially complete Rolex watches. Exactly, yes. So basically, this, this, uh, in the Rolex catalog from 1935, the, the watch has a Rolex uh, uh, logo on the dial. Mm -hmm. and, um, so, but this was a nine-carat gold watch. And we know from uh, from uh, you know from documents that surfaced over time that uh, the the Italian Navy tested this watch, and uh, that you know it turned out to be to be you know the right watch for for the underwater units, and so they ordered I think another 19 pieces, but this time in uh, stainless steel. So there's also an, uh, a delivery note from Rolex Geneva, from I think from early 1936 mm -hmm. where they basically sent 19 uh, reference 2533 basically the same watch as the gold watch but in stainless steel 
And uh, that's all the information there is. And uh, there is another invoice from 1939 where they, where Rolex Geneva sent another 15 uh, of these watches referenced 2533 um, to Panerai in Florence. And in that later invoice, it says in brackets that the dials were supplied by uh, Panerai itself. Okay. So this is an interesting thing because it doesn't mention that in the in the first two invoices. So we believe that the first watches that were sent to Florence, the, the gold watch and of course those 19 pieces that were sent in 1936, that those watches had regular Rolex branded dials. But you need to understand that at the time, um, you know, in preparation for war, uh, there was an autarky policy in place in Italy, but also in many other countries. So the goal was to make to make the armed forces as independent from the from the for, from uh, from the outside world as possible. Mm. Um, and this is is of course something that was ordered by the armed forces, right? So, I mean, you know, it's it's uh, it, it is not very far to think. Um, that the reason why Panerai actually had to supply the dials was because otherwise the Italian armed forces wouldn't have ex couldn't couldn't have accepted uh, a Swiss-made product for their armed forces because they had to be independent. So I believe that at least some parts of the watches that was probably the deal. At least some parts of the watches had to be made in Italy. And since uh, Panerai had experience with uh, making, you know, uh, dials for instruments, dials for for gorges and for, you know, other other things, uh, I believe for Panerai, it was the easiest thing basically to provide the dial and, and so have the, the products accepted. Okay. But my belief, my belief is that that basically in, in this whole thing, Panerai didn't act as, as the maker of the watches, but more as a retailer of Rolex watches for the uh, Italian Navy. Okay. And so now we're, we're up to 1939, World War II is about to break out. What happens next, I guess, involving the evolution of these watches, how they were used throughout the war, um, and to the, the Panerai a brand and the Panerai family. My understanding is there's quite a lot of uh, moving around of um, the shop and some of the equipment being stolen by the Nazis and moved elsewhere. Some things were lost. Some things were found later that kind of lent a little bit more into the history about all of this. Can you kind of talk about the kind of the timeline of Panerai throughout the war? Yeah, of course. Uh, so, so basically in, in 1940, the war starts mm -hmm. and initially Italy doesn't take part of it. They wait for Germany to, to gain some territories. They want to see first what is happening with Germany because they are allied with Germany at the time. And uh, so once they understand that Germany, uh, you know, uh, was able to gain a lot of territory within shortest, uh, within the shortest period of time during the Blitzkrieg, um, Italy decides, hey, we want to enter the war, the war as well, because we have a strong partner mm -hmm. here. So they enter the war and they, uh, they basically start attacking the, the British Navy. Mm -hmm. And uh, the first attacks are a complete failure. They don't even get to attack the British Navy because I think in the first two attacks, the, the, the submarines that were supposed to bring the manned torpedoes 
close to the enemy harbors were spotted by the by the British, uh, by you know by by um, by Spitfires. So they sank, they 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 attacked the submarines. They sank many of the of the underwater operators. They die in the attack. So all of these first thirty five watches that were ordered between 1936, 1930, late 1935, and, and 1939, um, all of these watches are lost during the first attacks. And so um, Rolex makes a new reference in 1940, in, uh, in April 1940, they make a new reference, and that's reference 3646, which is now considered like the, you know, the, the, you know, the, 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 the very radio mirror that is known today is, is based on, on reference 3646. Um, reference 3646, all these references that I am mentioning, those are all Rolex reference numbers. Mm -hmm. um, so basically reference uh, 3646 is, is a simplified version of, 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 of the reference 2533. It has a, a much simpler movement made by court pair the first movements were probably made by montillier they are very expensive they have like they have like screwed chatons you know uh, where, where the rubies is mm -hmm. it's not just it's not they they are not like just pressed in the chatons but they are like screwed so it's it's, it's quite a a, a a refined movement and then mm -hmm. accordingly they were they were quite expensive mm -hmm. so reference 3646 is a simplified version of the earlier watches with a cheaper movement. Um, I think they have they have like thinner thinner um, wire lugs. The case is slightly different, but still cushion shape, of course. Um, probably the the crown is a different one, but we don't know because we we really know the the only uh, the only 2533 that we know of today that has not been uh, manipulated by, by vintage watch dealers is basically the, the, the one we see in the 1935 catalog. And that, mm. that watch has a different crown. So um, we, we don't know exactly how those stainless steel watches really look like. Uh, if if some, at some point one will surface, that would be great so that we would have a, you know, uh, this would be another, another uh, piece of uh, important piece of the Panerai puzzle but so far nothing has surfaced so anyway so they make this uh, this new this new reference and then uh, I think the next step is happens in, in 19 uh, 1943 in September 1943 uh, basically after Italy is bombed by the Allies uh, the outskirts of Rome are bombed the Allies land in Sicily um, so that causes a lot of problems in Italy. Basically, the, the whole regime collapses. Benito Mussolini is arrested by the king. Uh, they, they, you know, they put him away in, in secret, uh, at secret locations so that Hitler cannot, cannot uh, uh, rescue him. And so in September 1943, and this is a very important uh, uh, date stamp in the history of Panerai, some, something very important happened. Um, Italy surrenders to the Allies, mm -hmm. and basically, short after they they ally themselves with the Allies and they declare war on Germany. But as a result of this surrender, uh, and the Germans were already, you know, uh, basically thinking that this would happen, um, 
they they had already sent a few divisions into into Italy, and they relatively quickly uh, take over uh, all of the country that is not yet free, uh, liberated by uh, by the Allies. Mm -hmm. So basically, from from September 1943 to the end of the war in Italy, Italy or major parts of Italy are occupied by Nazi Germany, and um, so the next step. For, for, for Panerai watches is uh, in January 1944, um, I think around 30 uh, Kampfschwimmer recruits, these are German German frogmen recruits, mm -hmm. arrive in Italy to be trained by, by some of the Italian forces that have remained loyal to Nazi Germany. Um, this, need, this requires a little bit of explanation here because what happened is when 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 Italy um, when Germany basically occupied Italy, they um, they wanted to um, disarm the Italian armed forces. Mm -hmm. So basically, they 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 gave them the option: look, either you you continue to fight on the side of the Axis against the Allies, or you surrender your arms. Uh, well, they had to surrender their arms anyway. Or 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 the the other option was. Uh, you will be, uh, you know, uh, you will be taken prisoner, and uh, you will be uh, sent to uh, to forced labor somewhere in in some camps in Germany and uh, and South and uh, East East Europe somewhere. So basically, slave labor. So they mm -hmm. had these two options. So um, in in the process of this disarmament of the Italian armed forces, they they killed, I think, like tens of thousands of Italian soldiers that would not immediately surrender their arms. Like they basically executed them. Mm -hmm. You can see there the Germans treated the Italians as if they had been, uh, you know, the, it was a big uh, treason, treason moment where Italy surrenders to the allies and basically commit, commits treason to Germany. And so, um, so they had these two options. And uh, the Deutschima Flotilla Mass, all these three units, the explosive boats, the manned torpedoes, and the frogmen. So what happened there, uh, within shortest period of time, all of the armed forces disintegrate because of the overwhelming power of the, of the German military, of the occupying force. So what happens there is all of, this, all of these units are immediately dissolved. And uh, most of the Decima Mass, Flotilla Mass uh, members, they either fled to their families or they fled to the, to the south because they, they remained loyal to the Italian king who mm -hmm. aligned himself with the allies. So basically, uh, basically they, they, they left all the, you know, all, the, all the barracks there and, and, and went to the south. And... Um, some of the some of the unit members, on the other hand, and they were like, this revolves all around the junior Valerio Borghese, who was the the commander when this happened. Uh, you need also need to understand that when when basically Italy surrendered to the to the Allies, they didn't give specific orders to the to the Italian armed forces. They basically mm -hmm. left them in a in a in a in a vacuum, so they mm -hmm. they didn't know what to do, right? Um, so some of these um, um, frogman units and uh, man torpedo guys, they basically create a new Decima Flotilla Mass. But this is a different unit. So it's not the same unit 
pre-1943. It's, it's a different unit that aligned themselves with, the, with Nazi Germany. They were also basically under the command of the SS, as mm-hmm. far as I understand it. And they were ma- mainly, the, the unit basically uh, evolves into an infantry, land infantry division. They are not so focused on, uh, on uh, you know, man torpedoes and frogmen anymore. They are basically just like like a, like a infantry division and mainly employed by Nazi Germany to fight Italian partisans and communists. This is like a hyper, a hyper, a hyper fascist unit, essentially now. Exactly. And also, you know, the, the, the further it evolves, the more political it becomes. Mm-hmm. And uh, for instance, Eugenio Volk, which I mentioned earlier, uh, who developed basically the idea for the Gamma Frogmen, um, he, he remained also in, you know, basically loyal to Nazi Germany. But he was a completely apolitical person. Mm-hmm. So th- he's, he's basically very isolated from all this political stuff because he doesn't want to have to do with, with all of this. Uh, and also doesn't want to fight his own people in Italy, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because the Italian partisans were basically freedom fighters mm-hmm. who were fighting uh, the, the German forces in Italy to free Italy of, uh, of, of Germany. Mm-hmm. And so... so- you you have this uh this kind of this nazi takeover in parts of italy and in parts of florence and now they're being pushed back by the, by the allies and i guess a few of them dropped into the uh panerai shop on their way out of town and took some souvenirs or what exactly happened there that's right you read the articles right mm-hmm. I, yeah. I did yeah so, i did but can you tell me more about it and kind of what how that kind of because my understanding is that's kind of the next big evolution of Panerai watches in this time frame is kind of shifting hands from the Italians over to the the Germans now for a period of time. Yeah, yeah. So, so at the time when when these German countrymen uh, arrived in Italy to be trained by the by the by the forces by the underwater units that had remained loyal to Nazi Germany. Um, so when they arrive in in uh, in, in, uh, in Valdagno, that's somewhere in the north of of, uh, of Italy. Uh, large parts of Italy are still under German control mm-hmm. because there's a Nazi defensive line south of Rome, which is named uh, the Gustav defensive line, and um, that one is heavily fortified. So it, it blocks it, it blocks the the Allies from going further and and basically liberating Rome for mm-hmm. several months i think like up to five months or something that was a a big uh, big battle there when like hundreds of thousands of soldiers died there um so basically basically florence is still in german hands and they can you know they can supply all these watches to to the to the to the german to the german recruits and stuff and uh, one thing that is important to note here is that um Italian companies at the time they were basically doing slave labor for uh, for Germany. Mm-hmm. So all of these companies, Panerai and others, they were not being paid for uh, for the you know for the items they were supplying to the to the Nazis. Mm-hmm. They had to supply them. They either did or there would be you know like uh, severe consequences. Mm-hmm. And I spoke to uh, Maria Panerai, who was the widow of Giuseppe Panarai and she basically basically said to me no the Nazis never paid for a single watch that they took hmm. which is an interesting this is a, an interesting detail 
so anyway, so so um, so they were able to to give give these watches to the to the German forces at the time. But once the Gustav line was, uh, you know, the, the, the allies were able to break through that uh, Gustav line, it went relatively quickly. And so the eight, the British eight army, they were uh, advancing towards uh, Florence. And this is in um, late July 1944. So in late July 1944, the British are on the outskirts of Florence. And what happens is um, basically the, the 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 training facility in Valdagno is like more or less you know not so relevant anymore. They transfer everybody to Venice. They have this secret training facility under under uh, real life conditions in the in the Venetian lagoon. It's a small island in the Venetian lagoon. They have the 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 frogman facility, training facility, and they had uh, the manned torpedo facility on another island. So basically, everything is concentrated in, in, in Venice. So what happens in late July 1944 is that the Nazis, to be able to keep up the supply of all these watches, instruments, and other stuff that they were uh, uh, getting from, from Panerai, they go and raid the Panerai workshop, and they basically confiscate everything, watches, instruments, and uh, even the machines. And they ship everything to an old watch uh, factory uh, in Venice on the island of La Giudecca, the Arturo Junghans uh, watch factory. Mm. So interestingly, in 1992, I think around that, uh, they transformed this uh, Arturo Junghans, uh, old Arturo Junghans factory into lofts and a theater. And uh, in, the, in the cleaning of... Uh, cleaning out the whole uh, the whole uh, buildings um, they basically find all these panerai items like dials they find uh, the machines that were stolen they find um, uh, complete watches i think they found 30 uh, watches with uh, with the california dial which is a further evolution of of the of the of the Panerai watch mm -hmm. and uh, still in their card boxes and they were like brand new, new old stock. Mm. They found them somewhere in the shelf there in the, in the old factory. And um, so interestingly, there's also something that was found in the old workshop, you know, when these guys went and, and took everything in the early 1990s. So one of them uh, has, has a, a box of negative photo negatives uh, in his collection. And there's a, there's a sticker on the box which says, this is our workshop before the Nazis came and stole all of our machines. And we have here like double confirmation that this event, that the Nazis basically raid, raided the, the, the Panerai workshop, but basically confirmed that this really happened. Wow. Uh, and so, I mean, yeah, so, yeah. That, that's, that's incredible Maybe. evidence to come across, right? Yes. So uh, let, let's talk about the California dial because this is like uh, the next evolution. And sure. interestingly, Panerai for many years has claimed that the California dial is basically the first version of the Radiomir from mm -hmm. 1935, which is absolutely not true. Mm -hmm. Because watches with the, with the so-called California dial, which is you know, the real name. I mean, there's no real name for it, but 
you know, in, in Rolex advertising from, uh, from the early 1940s, the dial is basically referred to as error-proof radium dial. Mm -hmm. So in Rolex circle, circles, we refer to, uh, to the dial as error-proof dial. Uh, and California refers to a story that happened in the late 1990s where, you know, basically this type of dials were basically refinished or many dials were reprinted in, the, in this error-proof fashion. And um, so, so people started referring to them as California dial because the guy who used to do this work was a, was a shop, was a, was a, a dial refinisher in, mm. in California. So that's how this story came about. So anyway, so Panerai claimed for many years that uh, the California dial is basically the original Radiomir from 1935, and that's absolutely not true. The, the California dial starts popping up in, in uh, uh, reference 3646 around 1944, and we don't know exactly why this happened, but, um, uh, you know, it, it, it has probably to do with, with you know, Panerai more or less knowing that that uh, it's only a matter of time until uh, um, Florence will be liberated by the Allies, mm -hmm. and that they basically the last order that they made was basically made to you know to basically not not require uh, Panerai dials anymore. It is also possible that Panerai didn't have the the resources, you know, like the materials to to further produce. Um, Panerai dials, um, so we don't we don't know for sure. But what what we know for sure is that according to the case numbers, the error proof dial or California dial pops up in 1944. Mm -hmm. And um, so interestingly, those watches have uh, lower bezels because they were made they were made to house only the thin California dials. They were not made like the earlier watches to have the thick. Panerai sandwich dial in it, which could be like between 2.5 and 2.8 millimeters in thickness. Mm -hmm. So you see there that the new order that was made in 1944 was was no longer, you know, made to to be able to to install Panerai dials. And we don't know for certain why this is, but this is this is the basically uh, you know the the last evolution of reference. 3646 is the, the one that is very thin because of the low bezel, and it has a California dial in it. And these are sterile dials as well, too, but were these, are these the models that also had sterile cases? The ones that, you know, there was the implication or the suggestion that Rolex wasn't, didn't want to have their name on watches they knew that were falling into the hands of the Axis anymore? Yes, exactly. So the first batch that had California dials still had a Rolex... Uh, um, Rolex stamps on the case pack with the, uh, you know, with the case number, the typical Rolex stamp from that era. And um, so they still have that, but they have anonymous um, uh, California dials. Uh, oh, another interesting thing, all these watches that ba were basically delivered from 19, from early 1944 with the Panerai sandwich dials to the, to the German countrymen, they were also completely anonymous so they don't have the Radiomir Panerai mm. text on the dials and uh, this is basically Panerai not not wanting to be associated with uh, with Nazi Germany uh, and uh, you know it had also another advantage that basically you know Panerai was very scared uh, from from the beginning of the war that 
his house would be bombed by uh, mm. by the enemy, by the allies, right? So uh, an interesting story is that he had, at the beginning of the war, he had like this escape tunnel made from the basement, uh, you know, into into his, uh, he had like a quite a, a large, quite a large uh, landed area around, around the, around his house, which is basically a mansion that housed the, the workshop and, and the residence for the Panerai family. So he had this escape tunnel made to basically, if the, the house would be bombed and there would be all kinds of rubble around that they could get out of the, you know, survive, survive the bombing basically. So he had this in mind. So basically all these watches that all of a sudden have no name, Panerai name on the dials, it's basically Panerai no, on, on the one hand not wanting to be associated with, with Nazi Germany because he had to deliver these watches, you know, under force mm -hmm. and probably under threats. And, uh, uh, and on the other hand, it was the advantage to not having his house bombed in case that the Allies decided to get rid of that uh, manufacturer. Okay, and then so... Now we move beyond the end of the war here, and yeah, uh, let me let me let me explain one one more thing. So sure. basically, the first the first batch with California dials is thin, but still has the Rolex markings on it. But then the last two badges, or the last the, the final batch, is is completely anonymous on the dial, and it had on the case back the the Rolex markings, the Rolex stamps were removed. Why do we know they were removed? Because if we measure the thickness of the case pack on, uh, on uh, the watches that have the Rolex markings and on those that don't have the Rolex markings, they are much thinner in the center where the Rolex markings were. So they were just basically put on a lat and then just, you know, uh, quite, quite rough actually removed uh, the, the, the Rolex uh, signatures. And they also have completely anonymous movements. So it doesn't say Rolex on the movement. It just says Fabrique Suisse, which is French for Swiss made. And was that and done by very, Rolex or was that done by request of Rolex by the Panerai family? Yes, this was this was definitely made by Rolex. Hmm. And uh, and uh, yeah, we know that that it was made by Rolex because basically they removed the Rolex stamps and the case numbers, but they re-stamped the case numbers further up uh, where, the, where, the where the case bag was still the original thickness. So basically, they re-stamped the case numbers to have a reference for, for, the, for, the, for the watches still, mm -hmm. but without the name of the Rolex name. And if you look at the, at the case numbers that were re-stamped, we also have um, uh, Rolex bubble bag watches from the 1940s that they have the exact same um, same uh, basically punches that were used to to stamp those case numbers that becomes obvious that it was made by the same uh, case maker okay and so now moving out of the war into the 50s and 60s where now we see you know very much the panerai that we are familiar with today with regards to the uh the crown guard, uh, some changes to some of the dials and the movements as well too. We see the introduction of the eight day movements as well. Can we kind of talk a little bit about those changes and what led to those, uh, I guess, evolutions within the Panerai timeline? Sure. So what happens next is that uh, after the war, 
um, the Italians are no longer allowed to uh, to, um, to have these underwater units. That's a that's part of the Paris Paris Treaty Agreement with the Allies. They are no longer allowed to uh, to entertain this this kind of stuff. Of course, secretly they still do it, but officially they are not allowed to do it. So for uh, for several years, from 1990 uh, from 1945 to uh, basically 19 53 there's no new rolex uh, panerai watches then in 1953 um, it's like this i think in 19 in late 19 1952 the allies um, to have a further ally in their in their uh, fight against the, the 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 soviet union so basically, Italy becomes a member of NATO, mm -hmm. and then a, f uh, a few years later, they are basically all these Paris Treaty Agreement restrictions are lifted, so that basically Italy can become a full-fledged member of NATO against the Warsaw Pact, mm -hmm. you know, the Cold War mm -hmm. and stuff. Uh, so in in this in this process, basically, they allow Italy to to rebuild their underwater units. And uh, you know, man torpedoes and, and the explosive boats and the frogmen, everything, everything. And all of a sudden, they start they re they start uh, officially rebuilding all this in a professional manner. And so they approach uh, Panerai again because they need new watches, right? So what happens then is that basically Panerai um, uh, orders new watches from Rolex, a new reference. And it's uh, still a Rolex Oyster. It's reference 6152, and it's uh, it's a Rolex Oyster watch. It still has the same movement, but a later version with different engravings, different finish on it, but still the very same movement. And it has this time no longer the wire lugs, but it has the the you know the solid the mm -hmm. solid lugs, which is which are part of the of the case mm -hmm. so you know carved out of the same block of steel and there's an interesting thing here uh, to mention because uh, you know the the the, Ro the rolex panerai references w with the wire lugs at the time they came out they were completely outdated in terms of you know wire lugs were at the time no longer you know uh, no longer used by Rolex. Rolex since 1932-33, when they came out with the with the Rolex bubble bags, the first um, reference references with the automatic movement, uh, they already had like solid lugs mm -hmm. that were like uh, you know from the same cast from the same block of steel like the like the like the case itself. So there you see that you know the the, the the, the early references from from the Second World War were not, as Panerai often claims, like very innovative watches, that, but they were like outdated versions of the Rolex Oyster um, case. And um, the important thing there was that they were, you know, they were supposed to be cheap. They mm -hmm. had a cheap movement. They had a cheap, cheaply made case with soldered wire lugs. So it's it's a little bit like we have today with the with the G-Shocks and the armed forces. So mm. it's you know the the early Panerai watches were basically a cheap military watch mm -hmm. that could be easily replaced. Mm -hmm. And so now yeah. with with so, these with these later pieces, now we're not really quite seeing that 
cheap intention behind the design anymore. They're a little bit more luxurious than what they were during the war. Well, the first two references from the early 1950s, uh, they have this, they have this uh, crease that goes around the case. Uh, we talked uh, before about the 372. You know that the 372 has this uh, very elegant crease mm -hmm. that goes around the whole case. Mm -hmm. And this is an interesting detail because, I mean, you know, doing that crease is basically, you know, it's quite, you know, it's, uh, I think it's quite a, a work to polish a case to have that and it needs to look beautiful and stuff. So basically the first two references that were made in the early 1950s, which is reference 6152 and reference 6154, they have this crease, but they were made in very small numbers. So reference 6152 was made probably in 30 examples, and uh, the same uh, applies to reference 6154. Mm -hmm. And we think, when I say we, uh, it's like you know, Panerai researchers, a group of Panerai researchers uh, that I am in contact with. Uh, so we think that uh, that those watches were were basically made as test versions to see, you know, to see how these watches performed under real life conditions, because they, you know, they were planning to to uh, to uh, you know to um, enlarge to enlarge the units, you know, to to have new new units coming in like paratroopers, mm -hmm. frogmen paratrooper units. So they were they were expanding the whole. Decima Flotilla Mass idea into something much bigger. Mm -hmm. Decima Flotilla Mass, by the way, was dropped Disbanded. at the end of the war. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But the name, you know, was no longer used. It also had this negative connotation to it because they were they were, they remained loyal to the Nazis. So also all these all of these frogmen that basically remained loyal to to Nazi Germany after September 1943, they were no longer allowed to. Uh, to remain in the navy, mm -hmm. so they had to go and find other jobs. That's interesting. some interesting detail. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, so basically, um, so they, they test these watches, and I think what 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 happened is that they realized that the 6152, which was a thicker version of the, uh, no, let's say it like this. Basically, the 6152 was the first uh, post-war um, reference. And the 6154 was a thinner version made to house a very thin dial. And I think what, what, what that was is basically Rolex saying to, to Panerai, hey, you know, forget about your, your sandwich dials. They are, no, they are not necessary. We can provide a, a, the same luminous, uh, uh, same, similarly luminous um, uh, dial without all this, uh, you know, uh, complicated construction of, of the sandwich dial. Mm -hmm. But I think those, uh, the idea of basically having a partly Italian product uh, remained in place after the war. So the, the, the armed forces were, were still requested to basically buy as much Italian products as possible. Okay. And so where do we see the development now of uh, the famous crown guard that is so synonymous with the brand? Yeah. So. So basically, what happened there is they decided to go with uh, with uh, with the thicker version, with reference 6152, mm -hmm. and then basically Rolex creates a new reference, which is 6152-1, which is like a like a like a how to say like a 
iteration iteration of the original reference but this new reference doesn't have the crease around the case anymore so it's, it's, it is a simplified version of, of the original 6152 and uh, still the same movement it's basically the same the same version but um, but a simplified version I, my 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 belief my my um, let's say my thoughts are that it's it, it was made you know it was basically a reference 6152 but but to be cheaper mm. you know and so what happens there is they order 500 pieces so rolex produces 500 pieces of reference 6152 one and this still has the the typical rolex crown graph the the, the big crown but it can also be found in reference 6200 the 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 king's top this was the the, the Rolex Submariner, which was uh, had the depth rating of uh, 200 of 200 meters. Mm -hmm. So this is this is the next evolution, and then what happens is that um, basically the Egyptians, the Egyptians um, in 1955, late 1955, they uh, they approach Panerai because they want to have. Uh, uh, the same, the same, basically the same instruments and the same watches like the Italian frogmen have, mm -hmm. and this has to do uh, with with some of the uh, Egyptian frogmen going to Italy and training with the with the Italians. So they see all this, uh, you know, all this equipment, and they want to have the same equipment. Mm -hmm. But the problem there is basically that all these Rolex-made references are. Uh, exclusive to the Italian Navy. So basically, Rolex, in order to protect themselves from what happened during the First World War with all these Rolex watches going to Nazi Germany and they having to remove the, mm -hmm. the, the Rolex markings to not be associated with them. Because you also need to understand, Rolex was basically a company that was founded by Hans Wilsdorf originally in, in, uh, in London. Mm -hmm. So he was, he was very Anglophile, and he became mm -hmm. a, a British citizen himself. Was married to a, to a to a British, um, and he had this. You know, I, th I think he was he was uh, he was in in his heart he was he was not he was originally a German, but I think in his heart he was a British, mm -hmm. right? So I think that this happened that all of these watches ended up with the Nazis. That was a big stain for him in the image. Of his uh, of his company, and uh, so in order to to uh, to prevent this from happening, he had this agreement with with Panerai that all of the Rolex made references, post-war references, 6152, 6154, 6152-1, that they were exclusive to the Italian Navy and exclusive to Italy, and that they could not be sold to third countries. Mm -hmm. So we have this agreement. So the Egyptian Navy uh, uh, approaches Panerai. Basically, Panerai has to ask the Italian Navy whether, whether they are allowed to supply other navies with, with all of this material that is actually exclusive to, to the Italian Navy. And they receive basically the approval from, um, from, uh, from the Italian Navy. But then there is this agreement with Rolex that prohibits them to sell these Rolex-made watches to third countries, right? So what happens next is that to be able to uh, to gain this uh, to win over this uh, 
you know, this interesting uh, 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 job from the Egyptians. Uh, so Panerai starts developing their own watch, mm -hmm. and that's the GPF, the GPF 256. The, the GPF, the, the big Egiziano, exactly. Mm -hmm. So you see there also, you see there also the reference number GPF uh, 256. This is a, a Panerai, a Panerai number. And all the earlier references, 25, 33, 36, uh, 46, uh, 61, 52, 61, 54, 61, 51, they're all Rolex reference number. And now we have the GPF 256, which is a complete uh, own uh, Panerai development. You see that the design is different. The case is much larger, it's 60 millimeters. The case is, is more rounded. It looks more the like the like the Panerai instruments from that era, and uh, this is basically the first watch that includes the the half moon shaped, mm. uh, famous Panerai uh, crown guard. So this the GPF two fifty six was developed, and you see the case. It has like this flat seat. So the the crown guard is basically a part is basically a part of the of the entire case, mm. and. Um, so this is the next evolution in, in Panerai watches. And then they realized that they want to basically install the crown guard also on these Rolex-made watches with the cushion case. So they had ordered 500 watches, and so they find a way to basically install the, the half-moon-shaped crown guard on the side of the case. They had to modify the case. They had to create like a machine of some some parts of the case to create a flat seat so that the so that the um, the crown guard can be installed on it, and so this is this is important to understand. So we have first the GPF two fifty six, which was designed basically to include the crown guard, and and the the cushion case watches with the crown guard they were made later. So basically, mm -hmm. the two fifty six, as the name says, is is a development is the second. Is basically the second project of 1956 for Panerai 256. Okay. And so, the the Rolex the the Panerai Crown Guard on the on the Rolex made watches start appearing around 1958. So okay. you see that this is just a modification that was mm -hmm. added later. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then so, so is, where does Angelus enter the picture with their eight day movements? So Angelus. Uh, starts uh, with the 256 with the okay. GPF 256. So Panerai basically um, uh, makes an order of a number of movements directly from from Angelus uh, for their for their first own watch. It's an eight day caliber hand bone. Basically, uh, the Angelus 256 is a is a caliber that was developed uh, as an alarm as an alarm clock movement. It has two barrels, one barrel for the for the timing device and mm -hmm. one barrel, smaller barrel for the for the alarm uh, uh, components. So basically you have the alarm uh, uh, barrel that basically activates a small hammer that mm -hmm. uh, hits against a bell that is mounted on the back of the movement. And then you have the alarm there. Um, so the, the, the Panerai movements, the movements made for Panerai were special versions of that um, movement without the alarm components so it had a different 
it had a different barrel bridge without all the you know all the spaces for the to house the the barrel uh, the the alarm components so it's, it's it's kind of a special movement and uh this is an interesting thing with this movement because you you can basically take and this is also part of the vintage uh, of the of the homage game so basically you can find this Ala two, uh, angelos 240 movements in alarm clocks from the era mm -hmm. so what you need to do is you basically convert the movement from alarm into non-alarm and relatively quickly you have a movement that can look exactly the same as the panerai as the original panerai movements mm -hmm. with with a little effort and this is also something interesting that was part of me finding out about all these made up original so-called original panerai watches back in the days is that i you know i knew about this converted movement from the homage forums um, and and then I saw similarly converted movement in the in the in the so-called original watches, which mm. totally freaked me out. All of a sudden there was this blurred line, you know, like, hey, wait a minute. I mean, these watches are supposed to be original, but mm -hmm. they have the same converted movements like I've seen in the in the homage forum. Just you know, this is just an interesting detail on the side. So basically, this is uh, the the Angelos two fifty six. Uh, has his introduction uh, in the Panerai watches with the 256, with the GTF 256. But later in the 60s, uh, basically, and, and this is where this is basically where this watch, where this watch uh, comes comes into the picture. Um, you know, the the Panerai watches without, you know, the very simple dive watches without a rotating um device mm -hmm. you know where you can where you can measure elapsed times or mm -hmm. whatever um those watches were made for diving with with oxygen rebreathers so you you basically for the diving for the diving uh, uh thing uh, at itself you don't need a watch to time decompression or whatever you just have you know you have a, a um, an operating range of five hours with your with your uh, oxygen rebreather and the watch doesn't play a big role in this whole thing. It's just for you to know what time it is mm -hmm. and to know when, when, the, uh, when the charges will explode. So basically in the 1960s, uh, actually already in, in the mid 1950s, uh, the, the Navy start adopting the, the basically the, the breathing device that was developed by, uh, by um, uh, what is his name? Help me out here. The, Jacques the, the famous. The famous underwater, uh, exactly, explorer, Jacques Cousteau. Mm -hmm. So in the, in the 1940s, Jacques Cousteau with another guy developed this uh, scuba breathing de device, which is, uh, which is basically, uh, is compressed air. It's no, no longer oxygen. It's compressed air, but it's not recycled. So basically, all the air you breathe in, you expel and you create bubbles. Mm -hmm. you know? So you have, you have a certain amount of, of, uh, of air at your disposal which is like probably around like you know up to one hour depending on how on how you breathe underwater if you, mm -hmm. if you breathe a lot you will you will consume it earlier uh, faster so so basically uh, uh, you know diving with compressed air you need you need a rotating bezel because you need to you need to uh, you know you need to time your dive you need to plan your dive because you can you can go much lower lower than with oxygen rebreathers up to 60 meters without without too much each issues but you need to dive uh, you need to time 
uh, your dive. And uh, you also need to dive uh, time, uh, time, sorry, time, I'm, I'm getting tired slowly. <laughs> uh, you also need to time your, uh, your decompression time. That's a very important uh, uh, thing in, in diving with compressed air because you need to time your dive and you also need to time your uh, very important decompression time. Mm. Because when you dive with, uh, with compressed air, what happens, the deeper you dive, the more gases uh, are dissolved into your bloodstream. And mm. what you don't want is to come up too quick because all these uh, you know, uh, gases will, will damage your, your body, will end up damaging your body. So decompression is a, is a very crucial part of diving with compressed air. And so in the 1960s, um, what happens is that diving with compressed air is more and more part of the whole, you know, uh, uh, Navy, Navy diver thing. Mm -hmm. So, um, so all these modern watches come up that have the, the, the rotating bezel and all of a sudden, uh, Panerai watches are like, you know, helplessly outdated, mm -hmm. uh, Panerai tries, tries to do some, you know, tries to modify some of the watches with, a with uh, some improvised rotating bezel made of plexi that is attached to the crystal, but it's, you know, you, you, you hit the, the, the watch against something and, and that thing will fall off. So all of a sudden you have, you have Panerai struggling to, to get rid of all these 500 watches that, that were ordered um, because the Navy starts buying watches like this, mm -hmm. right? So what happens is that Panerai needs to, needs to you know, needs to uh, do something. And what they do is they, um, they basically modify the, the cushion case uh, watches that already had the, the, the crown protecting device from the late 1950s. They, um, they basically install, start installing Angelus movements on these watches as well, uh, because you know, they have to compete with these watches that are automatic, so mm -hmm. you don't need to wind them all the time. Mm -hmm. And the old Rolex, X18 movement is like a, I think it has like a, like a, you know, like a two days or something of, of, of winding uh, uh, power. So after, after, or even less, maybe 36 hours yeah. uh, of autonomy. So basically the watches are completely outdated. So Panerai comes up with the idea to install the Angelus uh, eight days movement so that, you know, you don't have to wind them every day or every second day. And, um, yeah, what they what they also do uh, they with the Angelus two forty movements they also uh, start using uh, small second hands at nine, mm. and uh, that's not probably not to time to time missions uh, exactly on the second, but basically to see whether the watch is running or not because uh, without that second hand you know you will have to wait a while to see until the minute hands moves to see whether you have to wind it. So basically, the small seconds at nine is is basically just a just a, a feature to show you whether the watch is running or not. But this is something that you know is in, introduced in the in the mid 191960s. Uh, and with this introduction of the um, sorry of the um, of the Angelus to 18 movement, they also introduce a new luminous compound, which is the luminor. Mm. So now the the modern Panerai uh, uh, company has claimed for many years that Luminor was introduced in 1949. Mm. And uh, there is a document 
where the name Luminor is, uh, uh, is, is indeed registered, but only the name. So basically what they have, this document that they always wave around is not a patent for, for the Luminous compound, but is basically just a, a, a registered trademark for the name Luminor. At the same time, they also recorded uh, registered names like Elux or like, um, what is the other name? Well, they, they, they registered a number of names that they wanted to use in, in, the, in, the, in the future. Um, so Luminor is also registered in 1949, but as a luminous compound, it's only introduced in the mid-1960s. And this occurs in the same period of time when all the Swiss watchmakers basically move away from radium to tritium. So accordingly, uh, uh, luminor is also a, lum uh, a tritium-based uh, compound that is basically harmless uh, as long as you don't, you know, don't eat the hmm. the tritium, uh, you 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 will not be affected by it. Uh, whereas uh, the radium compound is extremely dangerous. You know that uh, radium two hundred twenty six has a half life of uh, one thousand six hundred years. That means after after one thousand six hundred years, it's still half. Uh, as dangerous as it is today, and it's, mm -hmm. it is extremely dangerous. So, if you inhale radium two, uh, 226, it will be deposited in your bones, and you will die a horrible death. I mean, there's uh, the the story about the radium girls. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if 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 your listener want to look it up, radium girls. Uh, just Google it. Uh, it's a very interesting story. Yeah, and and we see some of that. Uh, how potent the uh, radium dials were and back in the day just in some of the damage that's done to the original uh, plastic uh, screwed radium yeah, dials that exactly. they had, they, right? The warping exactly. that they took. So the first Panerai dials, they were like a multi-layer construction consisting mm -hmm. of several plastic layers. And because of the strong radiation of, uh, of radium, they are completely warped. Uh, they, they warped to such extent that the hands could no longer turn and thus uh, compromising the whole the whole watch. So mm -hmm. after that, the, the the next evolution was the the aluminium sandwich dial, where basically the plastic layer was clamped, the plastic layer containing the the luminous compound was clamped between two metallic discs. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, what is also interesting to to say here is that uh, Panerai didn't invent the sandwich dials. Mm. Uh, the sandwich dial per se was invented by Sternfrer, which was a a famous Swiss watch dial maker, and they invented the the sandwich dial with the you know with the typical cut out numbers in 1935. Mm -hmm. And those dials were first introduced by uh, Longines in the 13 uh, ZN uh, chronograph line. They were introduced by uh, Bachero Constantin. They have beautiful uh, beautiful watches with uh, with sandwich dials, but also. Um, Universal uh, Genève. Mm. They also have some watches, some chronograph with uh, with the sandwich dials, and it's just an interesting detail to know that uh, you know Panerai didn't invent the sandwich dial, but they took it, you know, they took it to uh, to the next level with uh, basically the luminous compound being between uh, the the discs. Mm -hmm. Okay, and so one of the other big features that we saw develop in this time because of that half moon shaped crown guard was uh, Destro watches. You know, they're, I don't know if they were the first ones to um, 
present Destro watches in any sort of a military fashion or any sort of a functionality uh, for any sort of functionality type reason. Um, but it's certainly something that's a significant part of sort of their heritage is these Destro pieces. Can you kind of chat a little bit about why those came to be, how those came to be, and kind of what the story is behind that? You, you don't really imagine, you know, you just don't imagine in that time frame anybody really caring about, you know, a left-handed person being uncomfortable because of their watch. You would think they'd just be told to wear the same watch as everyone else, yet you see the Navy supplying these Destro pieces to um, left-handed uh officers yeah. in the Navy, and I'm curious about what the story is there. Yes. So we find the first, the first so-called Destro um, uh, in, a, in a picture from the original G. Panerai and Filio archives from the 1950s and 1960s. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's probably, that's prob probably around 1958. We have a picture, a black and white picture of basically, uh, uh, you know, the the typical Luminor watch that we know of today, um, with the with the half moon shaped crown guard on the on the left side. But this watch watch has a, a Radiomir um, Radiomir Panerai dial. So there you see that the the Luminor watch was actually born as a Radiomir watch. So what we know. But today is, is known as, as Luminor, as typical Luminor model. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's, it's an oversimplification of the whole Panerai history because those very watches were actually born uh, with, uh, uh, you know, or supplied to the, to the Italian Navy with Radunir uh, dials initially. Okay. So coming, coming back to, to the Destro, I'm not 100% certain that the Destro was made to basically, um, you know, for left-handed people. Uh, because, I mean, do you, when you set the time on your watch, do you set it while wearing it on the wrist? No, I, I usually just hold it in my hand. Exactly. Yeah. So I think the use case of, of, of synchronizing your watch uh, on the wrist and it's also like you know it's not really comfortable and mm -hmm. uh, you know it's it's you cannot really work precisely i think i think it's uh the, the whole destro thing i th i'm not sure whether it was really made to basically uh you know for for um as as a usability thing for for left-handed people uh i i believe it's more because the crown guard was like hurting on the on the on the forehand mm -hmm. you know when you when you when you uh, wear, I like to wear my watches a little bit loose. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, if if you have a, I remember wearing the the three seventy two, and it was always hitting against the back back of my hand. It was quite painful, mm -hmm. especially you know if if you, if if, if uh, it happened due to a due to a sudden movement. And my belief is that it was basically made to prevent that from happening. So basically, they would wear it. Uh, on the left hand, but the the crown guard would no longer disturb, um, you know. Oh, and and someone... it's also basically, you, know, you you need to understand that the the watches were not the most relevant relevant part of the equipment of a, of a diver. So basically, they had the watch, and they had they had basically uh, they probably had a, a depth gauge and and a compass. Mm -hmm. So the depth gauge and the compass were more more relevant. Uh, items for the for the for the diver 
than the watch itself. So I believe they wore the watch a little bit further further near to the to the elbow so that they could have the depth gauge or the the compass probably probably rather the the depth gauge uh, on the wrist and then the watch would be uh, you know uh, further apart from it and also here you see if you if you have the the crown guard on the on the right side you would you know you would always hit the watch against the whatever instrument you were wearing mm -hmm. uh, next to it so i'm not i'm not 100% certain the Destros were actually made for left-handed people. Just, okay. but, you know, of, of course. I mean, you know, if you are a left-handed person, you can, you can, uh, you know, synchronize or adjust your watch by wearing it easier while wearing it on your wrist. Yeah, well, you see, I've seen a few different versions of the story. You know, there's the they're for left-handed people. There's the one where you know it was so certain frogmen could wear like a dress watch on their right on their left wrist and then have their instrument on the left wrist if they were in dress uniform, which didn't really make a whole lot of sense to me. Or then there was the one <laughs> that it doesn't. Uh, yeah, essentially they had other gauges and other instruments on their arms, and by having that crown oriented toward the elbow side instead of the wrist side, it didn't interfere as much or bounce off of the other instruments that they had on their arm at the time, but you could still wear it on the left wrist just exactly. without without it pushing yeah. against your compass or your depth gauge. Okay, interesting. Yeah. So, yes, now, I, I think it's not it's not perfectly clear that it was really made for left-handed people, but I think Panerai, the modern Panerai company basically marketed uh, the, the Destros as, uh, you know, being made for, for, uh, for left-handed people, which, okay. is, which is okay. I mean, I, I don't have any any issue with that. I think there's bigger issues with modern Panerai than with that story. <laughs> well, I think, so after the, after now this part in the 1960s, is, is Panerai kind of falls off the, the grid for a while up until the 1990s when we see the revival of this brand. Were they really active or prevalently doing much in the 1970s and 1980s as a brand? No, nothing. Uh, watch, in terms of watches, in the... The last we know that the last uh, delivery to the Italian Navy occurred in 1968. Okay. And those were were uh, watches that had uh, eight-day movements, the the crown protecting device, and uh, and they were uh, Luminor Luminor Panerai. So we have we have uh, I think one of the researchers found this information. Uh, uh, like a delivery note or something with the, with the Italian Navy. So that's 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 for certain. And this is the last. This is the final delivery to the Italian Navy. After that, for for several years, uh, in terms of watches, Panerai did never ever deliver anything again. And then you see also that you know um, Panerai watches were were no longer relevant. I mean, mm -hmm. of course today. They are like special pieces because they have their special you know, looks. I mean, they look amazing. You know, let's let's uh, mm -hmm. let's be honest. They look absolutely amazing and unique. But as a as a diving watch, they they were by the by the mid 1960s, they were already completely outdated. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, all the watches that came after that, you know, the, the the professional watches supplied by Swiss watchmakers, you know, they all had like rotating bezels they had automatic movements and uh, on the other hand panerai watches were huge they had these uh, you know like uh, uh, eight day movements that you had to wind and it was just uh, you know 
this watches from a different era. They're obsolete. And I think that's the reason. Yeah, that's the reason why why from 1968 onwards there were no more uh, orders from the Italian Navy because, as you said, they they became obsolete. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Okay, and then and then we're assuming just sort of in that period, the 1970s and 1980s, then that the uh, the Panerai company sort of just dissipated, disappeared, and just kind of fell by the wayside. No, the, 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 uh, in 1972, uh, Giuseppe Panerai dies, mm -hmm. and uh, so the company, um, because it's a very important company for the for the Italian Navy. I mean, watches were just a, a minor part of what the, the Panerai company was producing for the Italian Navy. I said they were producing all types of instruments, calculators, all types of, you know, James Bond-like gadgets that mm. we don't really know of because they were like top secret things. Um, and all the knowledge about, uh, about those uh, uh, items were lost when they burned the archives. Mm. In, uh, in the early 1990s but anyway so what happens next is that um so basically giuseppe panarai dies in 1972 the watch uh goes over the the basically the the management goes over to to an italian navy officer because the italian navy uh needs panarai for to supply all types of uh, gadgets and so uh dino zay takes over the company and uh, he basically buys the company from the family or mm. parts of the company from the family. And he also changes the name from G. Panerai Efilio, which means uh, Giuseppe or, or Guido, Guido Panerai and son. He changes the name from that to Officine Panerai. So that's where the, the Officine Panerai, the official Officine Panerai name uh, is introduced in uh, 1972. There were earlier watches and instruments that carry the Officine Panerai name, but it was not an official company name at the time. Okay. Uh, in the 1950s, they started using the Officine Panerai uh, brand, but it wasn't a registered, a registered uh, uh, company name. So this occurs in 1972, and uh, then in the uh, in the 1980s, around 1985 one of the guys who works at Panerai, Betarini, mm -hmm. uh, his name, uh, comes up with the idea. They, they, they hang around in the archives and they, they find all these old watches and, and they think that it would be interesting to, to create a new watch for the, for the Navy. But it's not, you know, it's not something that the Navy approached them and said, hey, we need a new watch. Because back in the, in the days, uh, in the 1980s, watches were no longer that relevant for uh, for the for the purpose of uh, of navy divers, and uh, you know they, they also had you know they they also start, uh, had um, I think the, the first diving computers had already been introduced, so watches were no longer relevant. But Panerai, uh, you know, uh, the, at Panerai they believed that it would be interesting to create a new watch, and that's the millimetri. I don't know if you know the millimetri uh, uh, model. Okay, no, I have, I'm so not uh, that familiar with it. Millimetri means 1,000 meters, mm -hmm. and it's basically uh, uh, a watch that is also like 47 millimeter in diameter, but um, the, the case is very edgy and it, it, it looks very modern. Um, the, the dial looks completely different than what, what is known 
from 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 earlier days, um, and uh, it has a rotating it has a, a rotating uh, uh, ring, but okay. not with uh, with numbers on it. It only has a triangle, so that basically you can you can set it up for for a, an important event at some time. Yes, I see it. I, I pulled it up are here. You, are you? And it has that. It sort of has that first uh, rendition of the Panerai logo that we start to see as well, too, showing up on on dials. Exactly, exactly. So that Panerai logo is also very interesting uh, to explain. It's it's basically it consists of a, of an O and a P, mm -hmm. and the O has a has a has an arrow that is uh, directed, uh, you know, uh, to the top. And and the P has an arrow that is directed to the bottom, and this is uh, basically a hint to what Panerai was doing uh, in the 1980s. Basically, they were they were supplying like uh, um, they were producing um, landing lights for aircraft carriers for helicopters. You know, like uh, landing lights that you cannot see from from enemy ships from the side. You can only see them from 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 the top, mm -hmm. from from a helicopter, so that helicopters know where to land on the ship. Mm -hmm. So it was a kind of a very ingenious construction, so that the lights would be basically hidden from the side, but only visible from from from, from top. Uh, so this this was hinting at at that uh, those products, and uh, the arrow that is directed to the bottom is was hinting, of course, to the underwater instruments mm -hmm. and all the underwater items that they were creating for the Italian Navy. Wow, yeah, that's an incredible so that piece logo, of That logo appears for the first time on the millimetri. That's right. Mm -hmm. Very, very cool. And so this is it's, you've essentially taken this up right up until the early 1990s. Um, where we're now we're starting to see uh, modern Panerai take shape and uh, the the takeover by the Richemont group. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. So what happens next, what happens next is, <laughs> sorry for interrupting. No, go ahead. What happens next is they make this prototype of the millimetri. Mm -hmm. They give it to a guy at the Italian Navy. They test it for several months. Uh, the, the Italian diver gives it back to Panerai and says, hey, it's a fantastic watch. It worked perfectly, but everything ends there. There's no order from the Italian Navy. No one is interested in it. Mm -hmm. It's just a prototype that they made, and it just stayed forever uh, a prototype. So there's no interest. So this is when uh, watches, uh, in, in basically 1986, the idea for watches dies out again. And then in the early 1990s, what happens is, um, the mighty Soviet Union falls apart, mm -hmm. right? This is, this is one of the most important uh, events that take place in the history of, of Panerai. Mm -hmm. Because as a supplier of the Italian Navy and of NATO, uh, of, of a NATO country, uh, with the collapse of the, of the Soviet Union and, and, and of course of the Warsaw Pact, Mm -hmm. uh, what happens is that all military budgets around the globe of all NATO members all of a sudden you know are are reduced mm -hmm. because there's no big enemy anymore mm -hmm. so all governments reduce the budgets for military spending and uh, uh, and Panerai becomes a, a victim of it so all of a sudden they see themselves with uh, you know, getting bankrupt 
right? Mm -hmm. So they start thinking of what can they do, you know, to uh, to basically uh, survive as a company. And then the idea of the watches that was always in the back of the minds of some of the employees comes up again. And um, what happens next is there is this um, there's this article from 1992 in a Japanese watch magazine. Okay. So Jap Japanese, they love vintage Panerai. There's a French guy who uh, who works with a with a with a Japanese author, and they they visit Panerai at the time. They make pictures of all the old watches that they still have in their their collection, and this article is so popular that uh, that basically a lot of collectors say, "Hey, why are you not you know making these watches again?" Mm -hmm. And so this gives Panerai the idea that. Maybe, maybe recreating the old watches could be a form to help them survive as a company. Mm -hmm. so this is the thinking behind the pre-Vendom watches that uh, are made from 1993 onwards until 1996. And um, they are made by a Swiss watch company that, uh, whose name is uh, Gennat Montre Valjean. Uh, they uh, at the time they were Grenard uh, Montre They were making watches for a variety of, of uh, fashion brands. So it was basically a very uh, you know like a very quiet company that would make watches for other companies that would basically communicate that they were making the watches themselves. Mm -hmm. Actually, it was Grenard Montre Valjean that was that was producing uh, the watches at the time, and and so also with with Panerai. So um, an interesting thing uh, about Gunnar Montrevalgin is that they uh, today they produce the Richard Neal watches. So basically, okay. Richard Neal and uh, and uh, and uh, the guy whose name is Gunnar, they partnered together to create the Richard Neal uh, brand. So all the Richard Neal uh, watches are actually made by Gunnar Montrevalgin, who in 1993 until 1996 uh, or no, no, no. Until 1995, probably made the watches for Panerai. Okay, and this is where we start. And, that's where we're seeing the introduction of the Betterini cases as well. The the civilianized kind of versions of Panerais. They're not making them with the the cushion style cases that we saw in the 50s and 60s anymore. Well, it is it is inspired by by the cushion case. It is a different cushion case, a much simpler version. It is not as streamlined as as the old watches made by Rolex. Uh, it is a very simplistic design. Mm -hmm. Still, the cushion, but it's like you know, it, it doesn't have on the on the you know on the bottom side. It's not as streamlined. And um, what is interesting to note here is you mentioned Betarini and uh, Betarini designed the millimetri, which you looked up just now. Mm -hmm. um, there is this notion that Betarini designed the the Prevendum watches, and uh, that is uh, that is a myth. Uh, the watches were actually designed by Gunnar by the same um, mm -hmm. by the same company that actually produced the watches, mm -hmm. and uh, we know that because um, uh, a former employee of uh, of Officine Panerai told me the story, and they basically sent sent Gunnar Montrevalgin some old watches, and they said, you know, uh, let's make something that looks similar similar to this and then basically Gunnar Montrevalgin redesigned the watches sent them uh, uh, you know like uh, you know they sent them the designs and uh, what, what what happens next is uh, um, the involvement of Panerai 
of Officine Panara is basically only that they approved the designs and that's it. They didn't design the watches, they were designed by Gunnar Montrevalgen. So the whole Bettarini case thing is also a, a myth, basically. Mm. Interesting. So many myths to unpack and so much uh, unique history with Panerai and kind of hearing the true story compared to the story that we hear now so much from modern Panerai. Um, yeah. Jose, you have shared so much about the history today with us about Panerai and really brought us all the way up into the modern era. Uh, obviously, this is an extremely long episode, so we will be doing a part two together. We're going to make some plans to make that happen here sometime soon and, uh, then For talk, sure, yes. and, talk, and talk all about modern Panerai, the good, the bad, and the ugly there. Uh, I know that there's a lot to unpack with Modern Panerai, your involvement and your opinions with with Modern Panerai, and some of the articles you've written. There's so much to chat about there, so we will be doing a part two. We'll be filming that later this week. But for the sake of this episode and wrapping this one up, can you kind of give the audience, um, you know, really quickly, some of the landing spots or places they could communicate with you or enjoy some of your work? Uh, sure. I mean, there's uh, periscope.com, of course. Uh, mm -hmm. I would suggest uh, people who are interested in, in this whole thing uh, just to, uh, to go and, and read up the articles. Um, I, I set up Periscope as, as some kind of a, a research platform. So you mm -hmm. will find case numbers, you will find movement serial numbers there. And, uh, you know, the, the, the idea behind it is that if someone wants to basically buy a vintage Panerai watch that they can look up the, the case numbers and they will find it on, uh, on, uh, on periscope.com. So you have a sitemap where you can go and, and see whether you find something that is interesting for you or you can go through the, through the overview with the, you know, with the more like search by photographic, by, by pictures. Um, so that's one thing. Then of course, Instagram uh, under, under the handle Periscope or mm -hmm. Perestroika. Perestroika is my, uh, my, my second account, which is like a, a backup account, just in case that Panerai manages to, to uh, disable my uh, main account Periscope again, like they did three times in the past, uh, after wow. me publishing some, uh, some really damaging information about them. Um, so yeah, I mean, that, those, those are the two, two ways to communicate with me. There you go, everybody. Go and check that out. We will definitely be hearing more about those stories in part two. But for the conclusion of part one, I've been your host, Eric, this entire time here. Thank you so much again, Jose, for coming on and chatting with us. If you have any questions, comments, or feedback from the audience that wants to chat with myself or has any questions that I can forward on to Jose, shoot me an email at RicosWatchesPodcast at gmail.com. Likewise, you can find me on Instagram at the RicosWatchesPodcast gmail or uh, instagram account just Rico's watches podcast if you enjoyed this episode in audio medium and would like to see it in video or any other episodes in video as well you can head over to the Rico's watches podcast youtube channel thank you jose we will get together right. for part two thank in a couple days much. here and uh yeah this has been an incredibly fascinating episode you take care and have a wonderful day you too thanks see you soon